Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome and thanks for joining us on episode number 53 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you think your story can help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. And Coach Spies, it's good to see you. Uh, I know the launch series that we recently had done over the last three episodes was a little bit different, uh, especially for teachers who are our listeners who are looking for some nuggets for their own personal finances and and how they can get that stuff in order. Uh, But tonight, we're going to get back to the more traditional fit style of episode where we're helping teachers specifically on teacher-related issues with their money. But before we move on to tonight's show, uh, I'd love to get your quick thoughts on launch. And I know it was a little bit even different for you and what we've done. What are your takeaways from that little three-part series that we did? Um, I wish I would have had some of that information when I was getting ready to launch out into the world. So, because I did take, I did go into student loan debt, you know, not a lot. I mean, I did, it wasn't like it was, I mean, it was about twenty twenty one thousand dollars $21,000 or something like that. $22,000 is the debt that I went into. So not a lot as compared to what other people, but I didn't have to go into that debt. I, I, there were ways that I could have figured it out and, you know, listen, listening to, to a Christine Ellis episode or, reading her book would have helped me prevent, would have prevented me from doing that. But, you know, and I want to kind of mention this when, when I was coming out and I think when you were coming out as well, debt was so normal. I was, I texted you the other night. It was, it was uh, kind of late and I was watching a rerun Cosby show. And uh, for anybody that's a, a Cosby show fan from back in the day, you might remember this episode where uh, Theo uh, thought that the real world would be no sweat. You know, he kept going into debt with all of his siblings and they were saying, you know, Claire was saying, you don't manage your money well. And he said, when I get out to the real world, I'm gonna have a lot of money because I'm going to be a male model and all this stuff, you know. So he goes and spends the night at Cockroach's house. And when he comes back, they have set the house up like the real world. And he, you know, they, they, he's going through the process of trying to get an apartment, trying to get references. I mean, it was actually a really cool thing that they did. But one thing that I took away from it was he didn't have enough money left over to get furniture. And guess what their advice was? To go put the furniture on credit. And I thought, huh, that's why we, I mean, it was so normalized. So the idea of going in, I, I, that was a roundabout way of saying that the idea of going into debt for my education was so normalized. You know, debt debt was something that you just do. When I got out of college, of course, you're going to go into debt for a car. Of course, you're going to go into debt for this, that, and the other. It's just what you do. I mean, it was, it was, it was part of it. And, you know, now, like with this launch series, we're talking about good, sound financial principles for young people. And Dave, you know, I'd love to, you know, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that race to, is it a race to, 10,000 or 20,000 before you're 18 by 25. But what is it again? 25 by 25. 25,000 by 25 years old. That is something that can, is very doable. But that that goal was never placed in front of me. So my take on the launch series is is man how far we've come in terms of giving advice to young people since I was a kid. 
you know, and, and I, I felt like we had three really good episodes that really gave good advice to young people and good advice to people who are trying to help young people, which is what we do as teachers. So. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point of that, that little mini series is of course, we know that a lot of people listen because they want advice for their finances, <coughs> but what can we do to, you know, help the students that we do teach and give them maybe access to information that, you know, guidance counselors, school counselors are, are super busy. We have 1300 kids at my high school with three guidance counselors and uh, you know, they can't really get to all those kids with 504s and testing and everything else. So hopefully the launch series will help someone out. It's been heavily downloaded and we appreciate uh, the support and those guests as always. So, you know, one of the things that we need to get across to our young people is that personal finance as complex as it can seem doesn't necessarily have to be as complex as we make it out to be. And I think even a lot of teachers, I'm sure we'll get into this. We're never really given a whole lot of uh, financial advice while we're in college. Again, debt is normalized. Uh, But we're going to talk about a book called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated Tonight. And, And again, honestly, I think this is a great recommendation, this book for educators who don't get much of a financial education during their four years of college. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty concerned about the personal finance course that's getting ready to be offered to all students in North Carolina. You know, there, I've, I've seen or heard about the training and that sort of thing. And I'm afraid that, that, that it may not be taken seriously and that we may have teachers teaching it that, that don't take it seriously. I hope that's not the case, but I'm afraid that could be the case. And, um, you know, I assume personal finance can be as simple or as complicated as you as you want to make it. But I think our attitude towards personal finance is going to be uh, as important as anything. Like I can imagine taking the course with you and, and, and as passionate as you are about it and as passionate as you are about sharing the information with the kids. Kids are going to grab what they feel like their teacher is passionate about. I hope that we find passionate people in every school to, to teach it. But this would be a great book because I think a lot of teachers that are going to be teaching personal finance, you know, they, they're probably like I was, they, they, they know a lot of things in theory, but they may not be executing those things. And so they're not passionate about it. And so that'll come through if that's the case. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're basically going to take a look at the book and come up with some tidbits, some different rules that they discuss in the book. Uh, and the whole premise of the book is that you don't have to, you know, even read a 200 page book to get the information, all the information that you need to have a, a sound, basic quality life when it, when it comes to your finances could fit on one index card. So we're going to have a little back and forth tonight, coach. And I want you to start with uh, rule number one from the book. And we're going to talk about that and we'll make it through probably about eight of the rules. Yeah. Rule number one, uh, save 10 to 20% of your income. And, uh, you know, everybody that if if anybody listens to the show regularly, you know, I advocate for the 50, 30, 20 um, budget anyway. I think that 20, I I don't think you should save less than 20%. I think that from the beginning, you should be saving 20%. For a lot of people, saving 20% may not be obtainable because they have, they've got to rewind their lifestyle. They've already gotten themselves into some debt and things like that. So you may be listening right now. You might be like, I can't save 20% of my income. And sometimes this is where a financial coach can really help you too. You know, Dave's a financial coach. We've got a couple of financial coaches that actually listen to the, to the show. And I think that a financial coach can sometimes sit down with you and help you to rewind your lifestyle 
you'd be surprised how much money you could save and get to that 20% mark. But I think 20% is a bare, a bare minimum of what you should be saving. And then I break that 20% up into actually 15 and five. Uh, 5% should go into your savings once you have a fully funded savings account, which is three to six months of bills and expenses. And then 15% should be going into your, uh, to a retirement account, uh, an IRA, some sort of IRA, Roth IRA, maybe a, maybe a 529 plan, something like that. And um, so, you know, one of the things that the chapter addresses is, you know, how do you get there? I think that's, that's how you get there. Dave, what are some things as a financial coach, what are some things that you have discovered that people don't even realize, but the things that they could cut back on that would help them produce that 20% that they could put in savings and investing? I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but honestly, I think some of the worst things that we do in this country with our finances is almost at the corner of every busy intersection. And that's a gas station. And when I say that's a gas station, I'm not talking about the rising inflation with gas prices. What I'm talking about is going in and buying $10 of lottery tickets, uh, you know, getting some snacks, getting the monster, getting a coffee, uh, you know, buying something else that they're dangling in front of us in the line. I mean, literally pay attention when you go to the gas station, not to judge, but watch what people in front of you are buying there. I see a lot of people spending $15, $20, $30 in addition to their gas, just making that quick trip to the station. Uh, and I'd say another one dealing with uh, with vehicles, I'm not going to go into the car payments right now, but it's just simply getting in your vehicle and going through the drive through for fast food. I don't think most Americans have any idea of how much money they're spending on eating out. And it's even more dangerous now. The technology is great. But when you look at Grubhub and you look at Uber Eats and things like that, it's so easy to say, well, you know, I, I really don't have anything that I want to make tonight or the kids have soccer practice. Let's just go ahead and do DoorDash. Uh, and then, you know, $45 later, three nights a week, you've got DoorDash, but you're not really keeping up with it. So, you know, I, I am a proponent. I like your 50-30-20 plan that you talk about. You've actually kind of, you know, made me a little bit of a believer out of that. I also still like the the envelope system. And I'm a fan of that whole FU budget thing, where as long as you're investing you know, 15 or 20% of your income, you can kind of do whatever you want with the rest of it, as long as you don't go into debt uh, and you don't really have to feel bad about it. Yeah, that's, well, that's what a budget does. A budget gives you permission to spend money. I mean, you know, I, I bud, I've said before, I budget $100 for books. I don't feel bad when I spend my $100 on books because it's something that I find value in. Uh, I, I, I like, I like buying, I like buying and reading books. I like, I collect books. And, and so that's something I like, um, you know, for somebody else, it may be something different, but if you budget it, then you're allowed to spend it. And, you know, with the 50, 30, 20 plan, um, you know, I, I do fit, you know, which right now I'm on a 50, 50 plan, actually, you know, until I'm out of debt and I'm almost there. Um, as a matter of fact, I will be there at the end of this month. So congratulations. Uh, yeah. Pay, paydays tomorrow. And, uh, then, uh, then I'll be, I'll be out. But um, yeah, appreciate that. Uh, so then I'll be going to a strict, uh, a stricter 50, 30, 20 plan where 50% is going towards bills and expenses, uh, 30% as opposed to going towards debt because I won't have any, it'll be going towards trying to make a down payment on a home. Uh, and then 20% will go to savings and investing. And, uh, you know, so that's, so when I do buy a home, 30% is all I can afford. Well, that's pretty tough in this market. 30% of a single teacher's pay means that it's going to be really tough to buy a home. I don't know how long that's going to take me to actually be able to buy one. I don't, I may have to change up my plans. I don't, I don't know. 
But um, but but that's I, I, I do believe in that, because when you start spending more than 30 percent of your income on a home, that's when you can get yourself into trouble, I think. And so I don't know what what, what is your what are your thoughts on that? Am I off base here or, um, or is that? Is, I think is, we'll probably get a little more into that as we go down the list. I okay. think uh, we're going to talk about the home thing, but I wanted to ask your opinion on, you know, it says basically that the goal is to save 10 to 20 percent of your income. Do you view that as your gross income or do you view that as your net income when it comes to the percentages? Yeah, that's my net. I don't I don't really pay attention to my gross income because, well, that money's not in my pocket. So I just kind of look at my income after taxes, my net income, and and then I go with the 20% from there. Um, so for a teacher, hypothetically here, I'm just playing on the calculator. If they were to net $3,500 a month, times 20%, that would be saving slash investing $700 a month. So if you were to net 3,500, uh, you'd be able to keep 2,800 of that. Uh, but 700 would be going to, you know, saving for your future self. And I also like the idea that you said that, you know, even taking the 50, 30, 20 into a 15% and a 5%, even though Steph and I uh, are at our, you know, emergency fund where it needs to be, one of my goals every year is just to add another $2,500 to that emergency fund, you know, as inflation goes up and things like that. That's always one of our goals is we always take a little bit extra to beef that emergency fund up because, you know, cash is king. You know, I, I was looking at my Facebook page and one of my classmates from school uh, was talking about she was in the market for a car and she couldn't believe how much price had gone. It's been a while since she she's bought a car and, you know, um, one of the things that that I do that I that I will be doing with my uh, with that five percent is that so you've got your six month savings so six months uh, uh, bills and expenses for me that that would be about I don't know probably let's just say eighteen thousand dollars let let's that's a good round number three thousand dollars a month I don't think it would it would it wouldn't be that actually but let's just say eighteen thousand. Well, everything above and beyond 18000 that I can save up, that's my car. Yep. So if I can get $25,000 saved up before I need to buy a new car, I have a $7,000 budget for my car. Um, you know, and so I kind of view it that way. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I, my car right now is a 2010 Mazda CX-7, and it has 150,000 miles on it. I'm hoping to hit 250,000 miles on that car, you know before I have to buy something else. But, um, and then the other thing was, I really like Maurice Atwood's rule on this. I don't speak, he said, I don't spend more than $3,000 on a car. And I always have two of them. And, uh, you know, add AAA if you like, but, you know, we, we, we're really big into this. And I know some people really like cars, they really value them. And, I, and I'm not passing judgment on that, but I would say if you want to live within, you know, uh, a really strict budget, really try to build wealth, if that's the goal, then, you know, making some sacrifices is necessary. The car thing's really tough right now because they're really expensive. Yeah. And I think that's, that's another way that you can find your, your 15 to 20%. You know, I just said that if a teacher was to net $3,500 in a month, 20% of that would be 700. Well, the average brand new car payment in America right now is over 600. So yeah. if you could just get rid of the car payment uh, and, and cars are made well, if you take care of the cars these days and get your you know, oil change and do your basic routine maintenance, you know, change your tires and things like that. You know, there's no reason why they shouldn't make it 200,000 miles. That's one thing, you know, that there's this, 
this taboo thing with teachers and their money and talking about it and we can't make it, you know, we are still in a profession where, you know, we all think that we deserve more. We'd love to get raises. We're not in the type of profession that you can generally afford to buy a brand new car every four years and rinse, repeat, and keep doing it over and over again. If you want to build any wealth, other professions with, you know, uh, jobs where a degree is required, you might be able to get away with that and still invest 20% of your income. But we don't have that wiggle room as educators. It doesn't mean we can't make it as educators, but if we do buy the new car as a teacher, we better be driving it for eight to 10 years. Uh, And when you do pay it off, you better start saving for that next vehicle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You said one other thing. I know we need to move on to the next thing on the list here, but you know, in terms of trying to open up some money so that you have more money for saving and investing, you mentioned the food thing. And, uh, you know, I think educators, mar- uh, look, if you're, whether you're married with children, whether you're a coach, maybe you're single and you're a coach, imposing order on your, um, on your lifestyle when it comes to food is really tough for educators. I mean, you know, you got kids, one, one's going to soccer, one's going to scouts, you know, whatever. It, I, it's it's pretty tough. You really have to impose order. I, I think you, you have to do it. Um, you got to be on the same page if you're married. You've got to really, it's got to become important to do that because I know for me, man, I really struggle with that to, to really, you know, to use that word again, to, to impose order on that. If, if something happens on a Sunday and I don't meal prep, my week is shot as far as eating out when I'm coaching, I mean, because, you know, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to cook uh, when I get time home. to go to the grocery store. That yeah. Point. I mean, I mean, if it's, if it's six o'clock and I'm six 30 and I'm just, you know, leaving the school heading home, it is a guarantee. I'm stopping at a fast food place probably, or going into the, maybe going into the grocery store and getting one of those artisserie chickens. That's a better. Oh idea. God. Sam's has the best one. I'm telling you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's intentionality coach. It's tough, man. It's It's just like anything else. Like I was, I was the classic Hmm. student, uh, in high school. And and again, I know we've got to move on to the other roles, but I've said this before on the show of there's three types of people, those who watch things happen, those who make things happen. And those who say, what just happened? I was that kid in high school when I was growing up, like what just happened? We've got a test today. We've got a quiz. Like I didn't (laughs) even know that. It was like, some kid will be like, yeah. What do you think we did all day yesterday? We did review games all day. I'm like, Oh crap. You know, I thought we were just having fun. Yeah. I thought we were just having fun. I, you know, and then I try <laughs> to find like the cute girl next to me. Hey, can you help me study really quick? 10 minutes, you know, during channel one or whatever, but um, <laughs> channel you know, one that takes me back. I had no, I had no intentionality in my life. I was just kind of going wherever the wind blew me. And, and honestly, the thing that helps me the most coach is having a calendar on my phone anything that pops up with practices, conferences, open house night, like you just had games. As soon as I get it, I plug that stuff in my calendar and you've got to be intentional with your time. Because if you don't, a lot of times visa or MasterCard is going to be catching your slack for you. So we've got to plan this stuff. We've got to prep it out and have your week ready to go. Let's go to rule number two, coach. Uh, Rule number two from the book. Again, the index card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. They're not anti-credit card in the book like Dave Ramsey, but what they do say, coach, is that if you use a credit card, you need to pay it off every month so that you'll never incur interest. Uh, And according to NerdWallet, only one third of Americans actually who use a credit card pay it off each month. Two thirds of Americans carry balance from month to month. 
and, and the newest numbers from just last year is that the average American has $6,000 of credit card debt. And we are now $357 billion in credit card debt in the country. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, our last episode of season one where we had Jerry Bourne and Justin Garrett on the show and they talked about you know travel hacking with credit cards and and both of them talked about the importance of paying those credit cards off immediately. Like, you know, one of the things that I think it was Justin that said, uh, you know, uh, as it as it turns out, you can pay those credit cards before the end of the month if you want to. You can pay them off as many times as you like during the month. And I don't you know, I guess people don't sometimes realize that it's like I can do that. Yeah, you can do that. You can just pay them off. Um, I'm not a fan of of using a credit card uh, for for myself in the position that I'm in. I, perhaps one day I'll be there. I know you do now since that episode, and I'm sure I will one day uh, for the purpose of travel hacking because who doesn't want to travel? But um, in terms of uh, you know, I, I don't want to. If I was going to use a credit card, it would be because for that purpose. It would be for the purpose of gaining points. And if I, I shouldn't have to use a credit card to make purchases. If I do, then I've really got to rewind my lifestyle. Yeah, but, you're um, talking about using it as a as an offensive weapon, as a tool, basically. Yeah. But yeah, you have yeah, all yeah. your spending under control. Uh, and we just did it. You know, I've never been the credit card person. You mentioned it. Uh, what a great episode with uh, Justin and Jerry. If you go back uh, just before Christmas and check that out. Uh, but we opened up the Chase Sapphire card, Coach. And, yeah, that's uh, what Justin said to do. Yeah, We ended up getting the, the $650 travel rewards because we spent the $4,000 in the first three months on it. Uh, and then I referred my wife, which got us another $150. So now we're up to $800 in travel rewards. Uh, and we're getting ready to launch another Airbnb. So I just had to put uh, five grand on a credit card for all new appliances for the kitchen. I put that on Steph's new credit card, which got us another 650 bucks. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, somewhere in the, the $1,300, $1,400 range in credit card rewards, but we didn't go put stuff on a credit card that we didn't need just to put it on there to get points. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We only did it because we knew we had to spend the money and guess what? We had the cash for it. So as soon as we put that stuff on the card, what did I do within 30 minutes of putting it on the card? I immediately already paid it off. So you got to be careful with the credit cards. If it's used as a tool, it can be a good thing potentially, but it's also a dangerous thing. I think we need to just know who we are. My wife knows, don't give me a credit card. She can't handle that self-admittedly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm still like that or not. My habits have changed quite a bit in the last couple of years, but uh, you know, but I would be leery though, because I, I do feel, I know that I'm wired as a spender. I know that I, you know, I have a tendency to spend money that I should not or don't need to spend. And because I know that about myself, I'm, I'm probably more disciplined and strict than I, than because I understand that about myself. But, you know, ever we've talked about this before. It, it seems like there's a spectrum and some people lean towards saving. Some people are to the end of that spectrum where they're ultra savers, where they can't even spend money and feel good about it. And then you've got the other end of it where they, you know, there's a hole in their pocket. They can't keep, keep money. And, but, you know, knowing who you are, I would definitely suggest anybody that's thinking of using the credit card as a weapon for, you know, points and, and traveling and all that stuff. I would definitely suggest going to listen to the episode that we did with Justin Garrett and Jerry Bourne and listen to those two explain how they do it. And you, that, that would be a, a good place to start if you wanted to do that. If you were in a financial position to do that and you wanted to do that. 
Absolutely. And, and again, if you use a credit card, pay it off every single month. The yep. average interest rate on a credit card right now is hovering somewhere around 18%. Unreal. Um, which, which is tough. And that, that is episode 44 that we're talking about is they, is they mentioned in the episode, um, this isn't something that they suggest most people do. You've got to meet a lot of different things first, but let's go on to, to rule number three coach. Uh, and this goes back a little bit to saving, you know, 20% of your income. You're not going to just save it and put it in a CD that's earning less than 1% or just a savings account. Of course, you want to have an emergency fund. You're not trying to invest your emergency fund. It's there for an emergency purpose, but you know, there's offense and defense, just like in sports, you know, defense, an emergency fund is a defensive thing. Defense is important. They say defense wins championships, but an offensive thing is going beyond the emergency fund. Once you get that set for the three to six months, and now you're actually investing. So can you tell us about rule three? Yeah, you know, it says, um, you know, max out your 401k or 403b or 457, um, you know, things like that, your IRAs. You know, obviously to max out a 401k, we're talking about what, $19,500? Yeah, $20,500 you know, now. Say what now? $20,500. Yeah, 20, that's right. $20,500 now. Yeah, that's unrealistic for me personally. I would never be able to max that out. Um, what is realistic for me is the potential to max out my Roth IRA. Yep. And so, you know, when it cut, the biggest thing is to invest. I, I, I really like um, what Dave Ramsey says on this. He says that, that a lot of people talk about investing, but a lot of people don't invest. And, you know, just people talk about it. And the reason why people don't, don't do it is because it's sort of shrouded in mystery for a lot of people. Uh, they don't, they don't know uh, how to do it. They're, they're unsure of themselves or uncertain. I was that guy. I know exactly where they're coming from. Uh, and so, you know, you want to, you want to invest in, you know, the, the, the 401k, the, the Roth IRA, those are just, those are just, um, vehicles to, to invest. And once you, once you start one of those vehicles, now you have to invest money within that vehicle. And um, when you go to invest, you know, what do we, what do I invest in? You know, what should I be investing in? And the book does advocate for uh, low fee, you know, uh, I can't remember if it was mutual funds or index funds, but definitely funds that are not managed. Yeah. Not uh, actively managed. Not actively managed. Yeah. Uh, So, so an index fund would be, you know, a really good way to go where you're automatically diversified. And, you know, you're just going to try to fill up as many of those buckets as you can, one of those buckets, but you're trying to invest as much as you can uh, for your future. So that's that that's rule number three, essentially. Uh, Coach, I know you talk to people all the time about investing. What is some of your advice here on this? Well, before I give any advice, um, I wanted to see how well you know me, Coach. We're going to play a little game here. And when it comes to teachers in their investing, you know, this is kind of a generalization, but do you know which two accounts I love the most? You love your 529 account uh, and you love your, uh, your um, is it the 403B? Oh, man, Coach. No, no, it's the Roth IRA. Both you, and you know your I love the Roth IRA. IRA. You, know yeah, you, and your, you and your wife both love the Roth IRA. I, I don't even know why. I'm tired, man. I'm tired. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the Roth, you and your wife both max out your Roth IRAs and then your 529 plan because you need that bridge from 50 to 60. So you're, you're on the right track. You're just saying the I'm right. still not right. Yeah. You're, 
the 529 is the college plan. You said the right thing. Oh, not the 529. What? Oh, the 457. Man. The 457 is what I meant yeah. to say. Yeah. I love the 457. The 457 is the one you love. So this is, I love it. I love it. I love the Roth IRA. You can put six. Uh, for those at home, the 529 plan is the plan. Uh, if you have kids and you're investing for their college, the 529 plan is the investment for college. Which we also enjoy the 529 as well which is yeah. kind of almost like the Roth IRA, but just, you know, as long as it's used for education, but I love the 457, 457 yeah. teachers. It depends on your state. Uh, you know, make sure that it's a good 457 plan that has, uh, you know, your basic index funds, maybe your target retirement funds, which we'll talk about uh, low fees. But the thing I love about the 457 is coach Spee said, it's that bridge account. Uh, if you don't know if you can make it in education until 59 and a half, or you're somebody who, isn't really worried about the golden handcuffs of the pension. And you're like, you know what, after 15, 20 years, I want to be out of this thing at, uh, you know, 45 or whatever. The cool thing about that 457 is that you can put in 20,500 per year into that. Uh, hypothetically, if somebody was able to do that, that'd be tough, but some people do. Um, but you can access that money as soon as you separate service from your teaching job. And there isn't the 10% penalty that say the IRAs would have. Could you explain one other thing? So somebody at home might be sitting there because this would have been me probably uh, some years ago. I would have said, what do those numbers stand for? What, what, what is 401? What is 403? What is 457? What is all that? Yeah, that, that's literally straight out of the tax code from the IRS, like right. 401 section K, 457, you know, B. Uh, so as you go down that fun bulleted list of the IRS code, that's all that means. But basically, if you see 401k, 403b, 457, you know that that's coming from the IRS. And it's basically the government giving you permission to not pay taxes, whether it's now or whether it's later. They're giving you that incentive to legally not get Wesley sniped or Nicholas caged. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you can, you know, a lot of these have a Roth option. Yep. The Roth option is really good. If you invest your money in a Roth option, then that means that you are using money from your net pay to invest, and then it is going to grow tax-free. You're going to be able to make withdrawals out of that money. You know, 59 and a half, for example, with my Roth IRAs, when I can start making withdrawals, uh, I, all that growth, I can, I can withdraw out of that account. You know, tax, you know there's, there's no taxes taken out on it. And so the Roth option is really good. If, if you're not using a Roth option, if you're doing the traditional then that means that the money is going to come out of your gross, which reduces your taxable income, which that can help some people that can get you in a lower tax bracket. So you're not paying as much in taxes. Matter of fact, I think I would love to see one of the changes uh, happen in the laws is that we could max out a Roth and a traditional IRA, for example. I don't, I don't know why we can't do both, but. That'd be great. And one little thing is if, if you're one of the listeners who feels like, gosh, why didn't I know this stuff? <laughs> why wasn't there a launch series when I was in high school? As you mentioned earlier, uh, you might feel like, gosh, I'm 45, I'm 50, whatever. I can only put in 6,000 or 7,000 into a Roth if you're 50 and above. That's the really cool thing about, say, a 457 or potentially a, a 401k um, Roth option at work is you could do your $6,000 for your Roth IRA if I'm under 50. But then you could also max out your Roth 401k as a teacher or your Roth 403b or Roth 457. And you could do 20,500 into one of those. So that's a way to kind of catch up on those Roth dollars. If you're somebody who feels like you're behind, it's not like you're limited to just that 6,000. 
you could also dump some money into one of those other buckets, which is really, really cool. When I, and you know, when, when I first started, I didn't, I didn't know where to start. I didn't really, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. There was something about uh, the people that came to the school that talked to us about this stuff that I just didn't feel good about. And so I don't know if I would have ever invested. If I know that you did, you, you, you're invested, you're invested in the 403B, aren't you? Uh, the 457. Just the 450. Okay. So you're not, and you're I not started invested. the 401k last year. You did. Okay. Um, but for me, you know, I, I was, I was sort of leery of that. I wonder how many people out there are like me or whether I'm just weird. I'm, I'm probably just weird, but um, I, I didn't like that idea. But what I did like though, was being able to go online and go to Fidelity, you know, go to Fidelity and it's really easy. It's pretty much paint by numbers. I think that I called you with one question throughout the course of, and it was really just confirmation. I could have called Fidelity and they would have answered the question for me too, because they're always available. And I went in, I opened up a Roth IRA and investing within that Roth IRA on Fidelity is not any more difficult than my online banking. It's the, it's, it's, yeah, I wouldn't say it's any more complicated. And, um, and so if you're, if you're someone out there and you're, you're listening, you're like, man, I really want to start investing. Um, there, there's a bunch of good platforms now there's to do, to open up a Roth IRA. There's Charles Schwab, there's Fidelity, there's um, uh, Vanguard. Actually, Vanguard was the first one. The Vanguard was who I opened the Roth IRA with. I, I did have a brokerage account with, with Fidelity, but uh, all three of those, Vanguard's really good. Uh, I, I think Vanguard's the one that I, I probably like the best. I just like the idea that everybody, you know, every, every, everybody that opens up an account is an owner. I like that idea, you know, so. And I think that's a perfect segue into rule number four. So rule number three was max out your 401k or some sort of a tax advantaged account, whether it's the IRA, you know, 403b, et cetera. But rule four in their book, again, we're kind of just evaluating what they're saying. These are articles. We're reading what the book is saying. Uh, And rule number four is don't buy single stocks. Uh, We know that single stocks are high risk, high reward. And I think this is what, this is what turns off, I think, so many people to investing coach is like you said, it's, you know, kind of this whole mystical thing that seems like I've got to be a high roller. I've got to be a genius or, you know, I think the only thing most Americans learn in public school um, K through 12 education about the stock market is we learn about the Great Depression. We learn about buying on margin in the Great Depression and we learn the saying, buy low and sell high. That's pretty much the amount of investment education that many Americans get. But a single stock would be putting all of your money into say like Sears, which I believe owned Kmart. Um, Kmart was its own thing, but Sears bought it. You know, you look at Blockbuster, you know, uh, Chad Aaron mentioned in his episode, it was really good. Not that this is a good topic, uh, and we don't want this to happen, but imagine if we found out in five years that drinking Starbucks causes cancer and 100% of your IRA was invested in a single stocks like Starbucks and it goes all the way down to zero. I think that's what turns people off from investing. Um, you know, look at an index fund. You can buy the S&P 500, uh, which is the 500 largest publicly traded American companies for Vanguard personally. Again, this isn't investment advice. This is just what I do. I like VOO, uh, which is Vanguard's version of the S&P 500 that they track that index. I also like VTI, which is an ETF, uh, which has over 3,000 companies in it. I don't really have to worry about did, did Apple have a bad day or did Chipotle have a good day or is there salmonella 
uh, is something going on with Facebook and they're down 20%, you own little slivers of each one of those companies. And your hope is in the S&P 500, not all 500 are going to be doing well, but hopefully at least over half of them are doing well. And on average, the S&P 500 over the last 40 years has averaged a 10.5% return. Yeah, I invest in BTI. And, um, you know, I did that based on what what Chad Aaron said that time. Uh, we had him on the show. And so I, I invest in VTI. I, I, I liked it. I, I, it makes me feel uh, comfortable knowing there's 3,000 companies within the index fund or, or, or within the uh, fund. And, um, I, you know, you're automatically diversified. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, J.L. Collins, one of the lines that I took from his book, um, The Simple Path to Wealth, is that in here, here's a guy who's been an investor for years, for decades. And he said, when it comes to single stocks, he said, I can't pick winners and neither can you. And, you know, I, that, that one, that one, that one resonated. That one stuck with me. Yeah. And I'm not a hundred percent anti single stock coach, but it's almost like you talked about with credit card rewards. You know, if you're struggling with credit card debt, if you know you can't pay off your credit card every month, and if you notice that when you're using your credit card, you're spending 15, 20% more than you would if you were using cash, you know, maybe that whole credit card reward thing isn't isn't really a good deal. Same way with stocks in a way. Um, you know, I kind of follow the Dave Ramsey model on that. That Dave Ramsey says single stocks are okay as long as it doesn't represent more than 10% of your portfolio. So he kind of gives you that permission that, hey, as long as 90% of your stuff is in a mutual fund or an index fund, if you want to play around with 10% and pick single stocks, by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, my wife's brother, Sterling, who listens to the show, he dabbles a lot in single stocks and he's done really, really well. He's twice as smart as I am. He loves reading about the market in different sectors and up and coming technology I'll go to him oftentimes to kind of just ask for advice on, hey, what you know, what's hot these days or whatever. <laughs> and he's done well, but he he contributes a lot of time, effort, and energy into it, uh, and that's perfectly fine. But I don't think most people either want to do that or have the ability to do that. That's why I think the index fund or even target retirement funds are are kind of the newest things. It's almost like a robo advisor. It's very simple. If you're if you're uh, intimidated by the stock market or anything like that, you can open up an account at Fidelity, Vanguard, M1, whatever, and you can buy a target retirement fund. Well, what does that mean? It just means you put in the day or the year that you basically think that you're no longer going to work. So if you're going to say, I'm going to retire in 2065, you buy the 2065 target retirement fund. And what it does is the younger you are, the more aggressive it is, but the closer you get to retirement, it starts moving you out of stocks and pushes you into bonds that automatically rebalances your portfolio for you. And you don't have to worry about making those changes. So it's as simple as literally putting in a date coach. So two things about that. It's interesting. The bond market almost seems as volatile as the stock market over time. And so I've always wondered about that. You know, I've always tried to compare the, the stock market and the bond market. I'm sure somebody smarter than me could, could explain to me why one's safer than the other, but it really does look on charts and graphs to be over time, just as volatile. And, uh, but I don't know, you know, yeah, it's another a, thing that I would, Oh, go ahead. Oh, go, uh, well, the other thing I was going to point out is 10% on single stocks would be way too much for someone like me. Maybe if you're a teacher in California and, and you're making a lot more money and you're, and, and you've been able to kind of hack it 
like Crystal Parker Duffy and able to live fairly cheap and still make that big. But I, I, I really do. I mean, for me, there's no way, there's no way I could do 10% on single stocks and feel good about it. Um, you're talking about 10% of the money that you invest. That that's a pretty good chunk unless you're unless you're a, a higher income earner. For someone like me, that I, I can't play with that. I, I would all of my money has to go towards maxing out a Roth IRA. I don't have I don't have room for the other. So. Well, and even within the IRA, you know, 90% of it could be. Oh, no, 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 no. Within my IRA, IRA, all that money is going towards a fund that's say, and I'm not, no, 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 no. <laughs> when I think of single stock, I think I, maybe I'll go over to my brokerage account. Maybe no, 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 that, that is going to be automated in my, uh, in my, in my Roth IRA. I'm not messing around with single stocks and, and that, that's just me personally, you know? Yeah. It's all a comfort level. And it's your you know, comfort level. That's right. That takes us to, to rule five is uh, make sure you know what your fees are. Uh, this is obviously a major thing in the education field. Um, I love Dan Otter's group called 403B Wise. If you've never checked them out, it's a nonprofit. And it basically is an organization. Uh, they've got a Facebook group, again, 403B Wise. And you'll have teachers from all over the country basically say, okay, well, here are my options for my 403B or my you know, 457 or whatever. They'll post what their options are. And then there will be people all over this community that say, oh, you don't want that one. You don't want that one. That's got 2% fees. This one's got a better reputation. And it's a bunch of teachers banding together to basically fight back against what is essentially this insurance industry coach where these sharks are coming into our schools, infesting our waters. They smell blood. And they're trying to get us signed up. And I'm the same way as you are, coach. I didn't start investing in any of the products that the schools offered until I was like 28, 29 years old. My first five, six, seven years teaching, I didn't do anything with that. And literally, a lot of times the people that came in to, to talk to us, frankly, they didn't seem to have our best interest at heart. And they didn't have the heart of a teacher. Uh, and later on, I ended up finding that a lot of the stuff that they're selling has these 2% fees. And they're essentially like insurance products, not necessarily the, the real deal. So make sure you know what you're paying in fees. There's a big difference between paying, you know, what VTI is at 0.04 for your fees, which is or like FZROX, which is 0%. zero. Yeah. Yeah. Like zero. You're paying maybe look up FZROX with, with fidelity, 0%. Yeah. yeah it's it's um, literally free. It's um, free. But and I'm investing that one in my brokerage account. Let me read this quote from, uh, and I know she won't mind me doing this because she posted on her page. Um, I don't remember what episode she was on, but uh, she wrote the, a retirement book for teachers. Her name's uh, Crystal Parker Duffy. So I'm going to plug her book here, uh, maybe. But uh, here's what she said on her Facebook page. She says, I am in a lot of teacher groups on Facebook. I see a ton of posts from financial advisors in quotation marks or people who help teachers with their retirement. And every single one of them is an insurance salesperson. Insurance is not an investment. You should not buy investment products from insurance salespeople. Stick with Vanguard and Fidelity, end of rant. And I, you know, I, I, I shared it and put 100% up there. I, I'm, I'm very leery of uh, the, the insurance salesmen that come in and try to sell us products. I, you know, maybe I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Am I, am I, overboard on that is she overboard on that or how do you feel about that you know at the end of the day we're trying to get teachers to save for their future 
if you're investing in a product through your 403B at the school, uh, 100 bucks a month, 200 a month or whatever, hey, that's better than not doing anything. Yeah, it is two, better than not doing anything. That's two, true. 2% fees stink. They're not fun. They say that, you know, let's say that somebody over the course of a 40-year period had one of these products that had a 2% fee and you had a million-dollar portfolio. Well, you probably just lost $200,000 of your million just in the fees over the course of that portfolio. It's crazy. So if you managed it yourself, and, and that's the hard part, is if you want your fourth 403B or 457, it's not like you can do that on your own like you did, Coach, with Fidelity and Vanguard. You're limited to the options that your school district or your state provides, but we've got to do our research. And, and if you aren't happy with those products, if you actually are on the up and up, go talk to your officials at the county level or at your local level and educate them to try to bring in a lower fee product into your environment. But gosh, yeah, it really stinks to think that, you know, if I busted my, you know, what over the course of 30 years teaching, and I should have had a portfolio of 350 or 400,000, but then I realized 50 or a hundred grand of it has gone to that insurance salesman. Doesn't make you feel really good. Again, it's so, better than nothing, but you know, there's, there's better options out there. So Dave, who's your 457 with? Uh, my 457 is with a group called first financial, which isn't great. Um, it's the, the fees are over 1%. However, they're my only option. I, there's not even, you know, five companies that you get to pick from. There's that one company, but I plan on retiring at 50 to 52 and I need that bridge account. So I'm glad you said that I'm honestly kind of sucking it up right now and paying the higher fees because it's either that option or no option. Otherwise going to the County, but my County doesn't seem very receptive yeah. And so what I, you know, just for me, to me, the Roth IRA is first. I go to Vanguard. I go to Fidelity. I invest in a very, a really good fund that with, with, with low fees. And that's, that's your six or $7,000 right there. And if you're married, that means that's about $12,000 that you can invest a year in those two. Now, if you want to go above that 12,000, then, you know, obviously you're going to, you might have to look at some other things, you know, depending on where in the country you are. I mean, you might have a health savings account that you can invest in, which would be yep. really awesome if that's available to you. Um, but yeah, you really have to do some research on your options based on where you are in the country or where you are in the world. We got, we've got people listening in other places too, other countries, but so. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point is, you know, that comes back to like the whole order of operations of what do I do first? You know, there's obviously different feelings and there's no right or wrong answer, but the general rule of thumb in the personal finance world is the higher income earner you are generally, the more you'd lean towards say the traditional IRA. So as you mentioned earlier, you can lower your taxable income and maybe get out of that 24% bracket and lower it to the 22 or even less. Uh, but for most teachers, most teachers, you know, who are generally, if they're married and they're both educators making less than 150 grand a year, I think the, the best option for most, in my opinion, doesn't mean it's right, is those Roth options. And, and that's the first bucket that my wife and I like to fill up is the Roth. We don't even go to the 457 or anything until the Roth stuff is done. So again, know what you're paying in your fees. If you don't know, you know you're not going to go to Walmart, take something up to the register, and they're going to say, ah, that's going to be uh, 200 bucks. You'd say, well, on, you know, show me the sticker, like ring that up. <laughs> this thing isn't worth $200. Same thing with your advisor. Don't be afraid to ask them, how much are you charging me? How do you get paid? And what percentage are you taking? You know, that's not a rude question. 
So I'm going to go on to another rule that they talk about in the book. And it says, uh, buy a home when you're financially ready. What makes someone financially ready to buy a home in your opinion? And you're in this process right now. Yeah. And until you can, so to me, um, you've got to take a look at your down payment. You know, you're going to have to pay mortgage insurance if you don't put 20% down, you know, so uh, you need to take a look at your down payment and whether or not you're, if you don't have 20% of what you're trying to buy, then, you know, just know you're going to be paying that mortgage insurance. Uh, so that thing, I think that's, that's something you have to take a look at, you know, how much of a down payment do I want to want to have? You definitely want to go to the bank first and, and, and find out, you know, before you even start the process, well, how much can I actually borrow? But the amount that they give you is, is probably going to be much more than you actually need to spend because then you need to look at your budget and you need to be intentional with the percentage of your income that you can actually afford. Um, of course, you know, it costs money to be a homeowner. You, when something goes wrong, you don't get to just call the landlord and have them come fix it. So you have to figure maintenance of a property and, and things like that. You've got to think about all that. And so to me, if your mortgage your mortgage insurance, uh, your your home insurance, if all that's going to take you too far north of 30% of your income, that may be too much house for you. Um, that's just my, that's for me personally. I shouldn't say for you. I should say for me. That's that's what I wanted. I want my the total that I allot for my home to fall under 30% of my income. But that's really tough to do in this market. So... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, as you were saying that, I was looking this up. I couldn't remember. Obviously, my wife's a real estate agent. If you're if you're a listener of the show, if you're new to the show, my wife's in real estate. And one of the things, you know, I think a lot of people think about when they're buying the house is, do I have twenty percent down? I know when I bought my first house, I didn't even know what PMI was. Didn't even know what it stood for. Um, but it's not always true. No. Um, that you would have to pay PMI if you don't put down 20%. That's true. This is where if you're looking to to buy a home, shop around. I know where we're at in a military town. I had one of my former students who was a baseball player of mine. Um, he ended up getting a, a home loan through Navy Federal Credit Union. And he only had to put down 5%. And there was no PMI because they had a special program. So shop around to credit unions, banks, there are lots of programs out there for teachers where you can put no money down and have no PMI. So don't just sign up for the first offer uh, that some bank gives you on a mortgage. Do your homework and do your shopping around. Now, I'm generally against the whole 0% down. I like to put a little bit down because you know hopefully I'm giving myself a little bit of equity and wiggle room in there. I think it's kind of dangerous to finance 100% of a home. Uh, and then what if that home goes underwater and you've got to get rid of it? You know, now you're having to pay money, you know, to somebody buying your house to get out of it. So it's dangerous. And, and this is crazy. It says on average for like a $250,000 home for every thousand dollars you put down on a down payment that saves you about $5 a month in your monthly payment. <laughs> so, you know, you might think, gosh, I'm going to put down 7,000. That's going to make a huge chunk and reduce my monthly bills. Well, yeah, Not it might really. save you. 35 bucks a month or something like that. Right. I, I, I really just want to avoid um, PMI paying the mortgage insurance. That's, that's really the whole thing. I, that's what I want to avoid. And you, but I'm glad you said that because I've kind of got it in my mind that I need 20%. I've, I've kind of got that in my mind, but there are options out there where you could possibly not have to do that. 
in general, now, you know, prior to 2008, there were all sorts of different loans. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. there were, well, there were ninja loans and all this stuff, you know, but um, you know, there some of those, so there's not, they're, they're not, those kinds of deals aren't as available as they used to be. And, and, and rightfully so. I mean, those, those, those uh, types of mortgages didn't lead us down a good road, but, um, but so, yeah, you'd have to shop around. You might be able to find a situation where you don't have to put 20% down and you still won't have to pay the mortgage insurance. But there is a, uh, there, there's a lot of, to me, like when you're trying to buy a home, that is not a quick, easy, to me anyway, for, for in my, at my income level, it takes a lot of thought and, um, and, and a lot of, a lot of shopping around to, to make sure you get the, you know, you're, you're working with the right bank or the right credit union and, you know, you're, really working out your budget, you're anticipating the potential problems and you're making sure that you don't get yourself in over your head. Yeah. And, and obviously again, being married to a realtor, I've seen the other side of, you know, my wife has a saying that she didn't make up, uh, but she says it all the time, you know, whether you rent or you buy, you pay for the home you occupy. And that's one good thing about buying a house is it is a hedge against inflation because let's say that right now, you might not feel 100% comfortable with making the $1,000 a month mortgage payment at a 4% interest rate. Well, the good thing is if you sign up for a 30-year mortgage, you're locked in at that 4% if it's a fixed rate over the next 30 years. Interest rates in 15 years might be 10, 12, 13%, but you're still locked in at the 4%. And if you decided, I don't know if I can really afford to buy something, well, now you're putting your life in the hands of a landlord. But guess what? When inflation goes up, the thousand, the eight hundred dollars that you were renting for instead of buying a house for a thousand, within five years that landlord could say, "Well, it's going to be twelve hundred now." So these are all things you've got to think about, and this is happening all over the country, where people are seeing, you know, mass transitions of wealth where they bought a home, equity is going crazy, out of control. They've got renters in their place, and guess what? These homeowners are saying, "Hey, I'm going to give you guys your, you've got your thirty day notice. Uh, we're going to sell our house and we're going to cash in on this equity." Now you have nowhere to go. So, you know, when you own your own home, yes, you want to make sure that you're, you know, financially ready and you're being smart about it. But to me, overall, it's generally a more stable position. Uh, also, keep in mind, I, I am speaking from a low cost of living area. Uh, I know that things are completely different in, in California and different parts on the coast, but it's a tough thing, coach. And, and I'm hoping you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Uh, and if anybody knows of a great program out there, uh, for teachers and getting a mortgage with no PMI, shoot me that email at getfiteducator at gmail.com and I'll pass that on to coach. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And uh, we're winding down to the last one here, coach. Uh, these are the rules that basically would all fit on an index card that can help people with their personal finance is, is make sure that your insurance is on par with what you need individually. Uh, and again, we talked about the offense and the defense of sports and finances insurance is, is, is a defensive move. Uh, one of the first things that we did when we met with a financial planner, when we first got married is he said, okay, well, how much do you guys make per year, you know, gross each? And he said, well, you need 10 times that amount in life insurance. So Dave, you're a teacher, you make $50,000 a year. You need to have a $500,000 policy on you. Not so your wife can get mad at you and you know try to end up on a Dateline episode when you piss her off one night and she can cash in. <laughs> but if I were to pass away and she's used to having that $50,000 for the kids and for our family, <coughs> you want to make sure that you can weather that storm over the next 10 years 
which again, that's why you do 10 times the amount of income, you know, so you can kind of keep the same lifestyle that you've got. So uh, any thoughts here on insurance coach? Uh, how much experience do you have with insurance beyond like car insurance? Well, I mean, you know, you, you need a risk management plan. You need home and yeah. in, homeowners insurance or, or renters insurance if you're renting, you know, but you, you've got to, you've got to look at, at, you've got to manage your risk. You know, you've got to take a look at what you have to, you know, uh, what you can afford, uh, what risks you can afford to make and, and where you need insurance. You know, there's life insurance. There's obviously car insurance. Um, you're going to have to have car insurance of some sort. Um, but, but anyways, you know, you want to sit down, you want to take a look. There's about five kinds of insurance that everybody should take a look at disability insurance. You know, you, you should take a look at it. And, um, I like the idea of having, I have my own kind of insurance guy with farm bureau and I like having somebody that I can go sit down and talk with. And I have sort of all my insurance right there. I think that's, that's, I mean, other people would rather shop around, you know, and see what they can see if they can get it cheaper. I like the idea of having uh, a guy that I can call and talk to. I, th I think, I, you know, I use Farm Bureau. I think Farm Bureau is pretty good, but. Yeah, I think I, I use them as well. I think one type of insurance policy that I didn't really know much about uh, when I was young and dumb and I had no wealth was a thing called an umbrella policy. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that coach. I didn't know anything about it five years ago, but now that we've got rental properties and short-term rentals and, and we've been building a little bit of wealth, um, we actually had a $1 million umbrella insurance policy. So if a tenant, you know, slipped and fell or somebody tried to sue us, you know, we had our regular insurance to protect us. But on top of that, uh, we had another million dollars to cover us in case, you know, we had to pay out for damages. And that was only like an extra 150 or $200 per year for a million dollars. So if you're somebody out there and you're building wealth and you've got some assets that someone might want to try to get their hands on, uh, we recently increased our umbrella policy up to $3 million. Uh, and I think they said it's going to cost us about $450 for the year. So to me, again, to have that risk management plan, it's worth $450 a year to kind of have the peace of mind of knowing that a $3 million lawsuit would be something that we could weather if something were to happen. Yeah, I know. I knew nothing about the umbrella plan until I heard you talking about it one time. <laughs> so it's only, only through you that I know anything about it. But um. So let's, let's kind of sum it up. All yeah. right. So, so let, let's sum this up. You know, they say personal finances is really complicated and it can be as complicated as you want to make it, but here it is. First of all, you want to live below your means, make sure that you can save 20%, save and invest 20% of your income. Of, and, and I don't know if you want to say gross or net, but either way, 20% of your income, you need to be saving and investing. That would be the first one. Absolutely. So save 10 to 20% of your income. Obviously, uh, the more you can save, the more freedom you'll have down the road. Uh, don't go into credit card debt. You know, just say no to the credit card. You don't need a credit card from Victoria's Secret and Walmart and, you know, all these different places. I'm a proponent of having maybe one credit card. Uh, and again, it's not a life, you know, you know, the credit card catches you when life happens. The credit card, if it's used as a tool and if it's being paid off every month is, is okay, coach. Yeah. May, may, and the, number three. So we're saving and investing 20% of our money. We are, you know, not going into credit card debt. We're paying off any credit card debt that we, we accrue or paying off in a month. Uh, next one, uh, make sure that you're trying, at least trying to max out one of those tax advantaged accounts or as many of those tax advantaged accounts as you can. 
Yeah. And when you are doing that, be very weary of buying single stocks. You know, there's, there's target retirement funds, there's mutual funds, there are index funds that mirror things like the total stock market index, the S and P 500. You do not have to be a genius. You're talking to two guys that were knuckleheads in high school that probably only got into college because we played sports in our freshman year. We we're probably close to being on probation and not be able to play the sport that we love to play. Uh, so it's not like Brandon and I are geniuses by any means. Uh, there's a lot smarter people out there than me. I prefer the target retirement funds and the index funds. I literally still get 457 and 529 mixed up. So um, I, to say that I'm not the smartest guy in the world is, uh, is probably an understatement. But I, I tell you what I am smart enough to do. I'm smart enough to take a look at those fees and make sure I pay the smallest amount of fees as possible. And that's number five. Uh, I, want, I, I like 0%, coach. 0% is a lot better than 2%. Yeah, I mean, look at look at this past year. You know, let's let's say that your uh, your stuff in the investments grew ten percent. Okay, yeah, you know, that quality solid ten percent rate of return, which has been yeah. the average. Well, inflation was seven and a half percent, and then if you had a two percent fee to your uh, actively managed advisor, well, you just made a half a percent this year. Congratulations! Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> yeah you could have made could almost made that much in your savings account. Yeah, so know your fees. Uh, <laughs> you know, buy a home when you're ready. Um, if, you know, if you're having to rely on somebody who's going to house hack, like, oh my God, and you're, and you're scanning through your hallways at the school, please be my roommate. Like, you've got to be my roommate. Like, I can't buy this house unless I know you're going to move in with me. You might not be ready to buy that place. And that's the reason why I'm saying that is I kind of did that when I bought my first house. <laughs> uh, is, man, it was looking back, it was 40%. Uh, it was 40% of my take-home pay. There's no way I should have ever bought it. That's my crazy. wife was telling me I was an idiot. She said, why are you buying a brand new expensive townhome when you could have bought something for maybe 70% of the price and spent a couple grand to fix it up by painting and getting carpet in there? And she was absolutely right. But I had another coach that was single and he was going to go try to rent on his own. Uh, and he's like, yeah, man, I'll live with you. And I was like, are you sure? Like, do you think you can give me 12 months? Because I didn't know if I could make it. That was really dumb, but it worked out sometimes better lucky than good. Yeah. Uh, as we say in sports, better lucky than good. But, uh, and, um, you know, make sure, let's see, what would, be, what would be the next one here? I guess the next one you said buy a hundred. And then, the, and then the next one would be just, you know, and, and actually I think the, the risk management plan, I, I, a good defense is a good offense. I, I probably would move that up the list some, but I don't think it's in any particular order. But, yeah, make sure that you have a risk management plan that makes sense for your needs. You know, everybody's needs are a little different, um, but you need to make sure that you have the kind of plan for your insurance that's going to, going to suit your needs. So, and, and that's it. That, even if you don't get disability insurance or life insurance, and, and again, I'm not suggesting <clears> that you don't get those things or that you do, I think it's a, a pretty good idea too, is do you understand how your health insurance works through your state or through your county? Like, what is your out-of-pocket max that you would pay in a year? And do you have that much in an emergency fund? I always think, you know, it's great. Everybody talks about the three to six months of an emergency fund. But I think a good place to start is, can I cover my deductibles from my insurance, you know, in case stuff does happen? So take a look at what those deductibles are and add that number up. And I would suggest that you take Dave's, uh, put a plug in for him here. He, he does a great workshop where he, ta- he teaches you, especially North Carolina teachers, he teaches you exactly what those benefits look like, and and he really he unpacks it in a way that makes it easy to understand. If you've 
never done that. I, if you haven't taken that yet, uh, I guarantee if you take it, you'll learn something. We appreciate you and we appreciate all the fans and the listeners out there from all over the world, not even just in this country, but everywhere. And never forget that someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. Thank you, everybody. Take care.